resurrection, and that's, uh, that's what uh, we will be studying today. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Luke's Gospel, we'll look at chapter 1, um, and I'll start reading from uh, verse 1, but our text is taken from verses 5 to 25. The Gospel according to Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He was of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all his commandments and statutes. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God, and he will go before him, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which would be fulfilled in their time and the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at the delay in the temple and when he came out he was unable to speak to them now they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute and when his time of service was ended, he, he went home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask God for his help in understanding it. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Bible, the scriptures, the word of God speaks to us and uh, the certainty that we can have in you as we listen to your word. 
Lord, we pray that um, you might use uh, the preaching of your word to affect our hearts and our lives, to change us and transform us, to make us more Christ-like. And we pray for understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll begin with this question. What is, what is a, a half-truth? A half-truth is a twisted truth. It's really just a lie. It's a fact that has been altered. And I was struck by this article that um, was titled, 12 Half-Truths That We Sometimes Live With. And the article just lists out a bunch of uh, facts that are actually falsehoods. Um, One of those facts, which is actually a falsehood, is that peanuts are nuts. Well, peanuts are not actually nuts. Uh, Peanuts are actually legumes. Thank you. There's someone who who knows. (laughs) I didn't know this. I thought they were nuts, but they're not. They're legumes. Swollen glands are not actually swollen glands. They're actually lymph nodes. And in Canada, we were always led to believe that koalas were bears. (laughs) Now, you will all tell me that koalas are not bears. Sometimes we are misled about the facts. What about the Bible? Is the Bible a half-truth? Is it a mix of fact and fiction? Is it, is it a, a collection of, of myth mixed up with history? What is the Bible? And Luke, who was a scientist, who was a doctor of medicine, he has decided to investigate the story surrounding Jesus and the, the facts and the events that accompanied his life. And he tells us, look at verse 3, that he sets out to write for us an orderly account of the events as they happened. And he does this for his friend Theophilus, so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things he has been taught. And he begins his account with this true story of a man named Zechariah who struggled to believe the facts as they were presented to him. Now, let me tell you about Zechariah's story. Look at verse 5. Zechariah lived in uncertain times. He lived under the the rule of a man named Herod. Does anyone know who Herod is? Herod was a king. He was just a wicked, wicked king. Uh, You could probably put him in, place him in the ranks of Stalin and Hitler. He was a paranoid king. He had his own wife and children murdered because he was afraid they might try and take the throne from him. He was, um, he was a greedy king. He, set a, he uh, collected an exorbitant amount of taxes in order to fund this crazy, lavish lifestyle. He used uh, taxes to fund clifftop palaces and building projects. And he left the province of Judea in a real mess. It was a place of poverty and crime and corruption, so it was not a nice place to live. Zechariah and Elizabeth are living in uncertain times. We also see that uh, they were elderly. Look at verse 7. They're advanced in years. You know, we're talking at best maybe 50, but could be 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. 
And as they got older, they would have asked themselves these really important questions. Like, what's going to happen to me when I grow old? What's going to happen to me if I get sick? Where am I going to live if I lose my house? And so, as, they, as their age went on, uh, their worries grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And you have to remember that they're not living in a world like our world. They're not living in a, in a time where there are government su subsidies and funding and assisted living facilities. They're living in a time when there, there is no social help. And we read that they're childless. In the ancient world, kids, children were your lifeline. To have a child meant that you had a future because in your old age, your kids would take care of you. They would house you, they would feed you, they would provide for you. But they didn't have kids. And so their future was uncertain. And then to make matters worse, they, they lived in a culture that stigmatized infertility. That people just believed, for some reason, they believed that if you couldn't bear children, that God had punished you or that God had cursed you. Now, that's not a biblical idea at all, but it was something that they just believed in the culture, and so they were kind of regarded as less than because of uh, their life circumstances. And so um, they're living in uncertain times. And, you know, likewise, I think we live in uncertain times too, don't we? There's this uncertainty about our world events. There's an uncertainty about the housing market. You know, that the, will house prices rise or will they fall? What about the economy? What about our health? What about our future? See, we live in a world of uncertainty as well. Um, life is this, you know, in a sense, a metaphorical ocean where, you know, one day you might wake up and life is calm and then the next day it's, it's stormy. But remember, this gospel is designed to give us certainty. That's why Luke writes his gospel. So that uh, we might uh, look to the, the protagonist, the, the main character, the star of this gospel, Jesus Christ, and find certainty in him. And I'll say more about that as we go on. So they're, they're living in uncertain times, right? But they've been praying a certain prayer. For years, they've been praying a certain prayer. And what have they been asking God for? A child. And as they grew older and older and older, eventually there was no possibility, at least biologically speaking, of them having a child. But what we see here, and this is a bit of a spoiler, is that their prayer would be answered and God would provide them with a child. And so this passage actually has something to teach us about the nature of prayer. Because Sometimes people functionally believe that God is like a genie, that you just, you know, pray to him and instantly he'll give you the desires of your heart. But what this passage shows us is that that's not the way that God works. You know, God is not a genie that we can manipulate him or bend him to our will. Now he's our father in heaven. And as a father, he does hear us. He listens to our prayers. He cares for us. But as a father, he has a better plan than we have for ourselves. And he answers our prayers in his own timing according to his own will. And that's what we see. We see that God actually, 
you know, after all these years, God actually answers their prayer, but he does it in an unexpected way. And we need to remember that as we pray, that, that actually God is hearing you, but he might answer your prayer in an unexpected way. So this family, they're, they're living in uncertain times. They've been praying this certain prayer, and they also come from a certain family. They come from a family of priests. Uh, look at verse 6. Um, they have the character, this, this really fantastic character. They're, they are righteous people, blameless people. Um, they are true believers. Now, that doesn't mean that they're sinless people or that they're perfect people, but Luke is saying they had genuine faith and they served as priests. Well, Zechariah served as a priest and his wife came from a family of priests. Elizabeth, we're told, she's the descendant of the first priest, Aaron. And Zechariah was one of 18,000 priests living in Judea. And of these 18,000 priests, um, there were 24 divisions. And his division was called the division of Abijah. And in his division, there would be 750 men. So there are, all, there are loads of priests living in Judea. Throughout the year, each division of priests would be rostered on. You know, kind of like how you're rostered on for morning tea or for music or whatever. They'd be rostered on once a year to do temple service. And they'd, they'd go to the temple. And of the 750 men that rocked up for temple service, only 14 would be chosen to serve in the temple. The rest would just watch. And we're told in verse 9 that the way they would be chosen was by a lottery. Not a scratch ticket, but, you know, probably some dice or sticks, drew sticks. And whoever drew the short stick would get this immense privilege of going into the temple and lighting the incense. A great honor uh, for a Jewish man. And, um, and we see here that Zechariah was chosen. Now, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because the priest would only be chosen once. And so he'd be responsible for lighting the incense in the temple. Now, here's what, what would normally happen, okay? What normally would happen is on that day, when the incense would be offered, uh, the priest would go and prepare the temple. Some of the priests would go grab some hot coals. They'd carry them on into the temple and place them on the incense altar. And then other priests would prepare the incense and they'd, they'd, they'd get it ready. And the crowd would stand outside of the temple gates and the priests would bring the incense into the temple and place it on the altar. Simultaneously outside, the people would be offering their prayers prayers for the return of the Messiah, prayers for the nation of, of Israel, uh, personal prayers, all kinds of prayers. And as they were praying, uh, the incense would burn and smoke would go up into the air and this sweet aroma would fill the temple and would seep out of the, the temple doors. And the people would then know that the prayers have been offered by the priest to God on their behalf. Now, obviously, as Christians, we know that this priest symbolized the coming of Jesus, who would offer our prayers on behalf of, of 
the people. But in those days, it's, it symbolized, this whole ceremony symbolized God receiving the prayers of the people. And then after that, the priest would exit the temple, and then he'd lift up not just one hand, but he'd lift up two hands. So I'm in favor of lifting up two hands, not just one hand, and pronouncing the benediction, and he would say, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, and may the Lord look upon you with favor. That was what was supposed to happen. But did that happen? No. We see that in the text. That didn't happen. Zechariah goes into the temple. Everything has been prepared. He's ready to go in and to perform this ceremony. He goes into the temple. He opens the door. What does he see? Um, An otherworldly figure. That would have been terrifying. You imagine walking into a dark temple all by yourself, and there standing in front of you is this kind of unknown figure, an angel, a supernatural being. Now, that would have been terrifying. And we're actually told, and look at verse 12, we're told that he is filled with fear. Fear falls upon him. He's afraid. Wouldn't you be afraid if you encountered a spiritual being? But Zechariah didn't need to be afraid because the angel wasn't there to hurt him. He wasn't there to harm him. He wasn't trying to scare him. The angel just had this message. And the first part of this message is, look, God has answered your prayers. You know, that prayer you've been praying all those years ago. He actually heard you, and he's responding now. That's great news. And then... What happens next? The angel says, God will name this child, and you are to name this child what? John. Thank you. John. And uh, which would have been weird for Zechariah because in, in Judaism, who gets the right to name the child? The man. It's a man's world back then. Sorry, women. You know, and that, that, that was the privilege of the man. And you know what? The poor wife, she goes through all the pain in giving birth to that child. And uh, the man got to choose the name. That's just the way things were back then. But here, God actually takes away that right. And he says, this child is mine. And I'm going to name him Grace. Now, it sounds like a girl's name. But he didn't name him the English name grace. John in Hebrew means grace. God is gracious. And he wants, he wants Zechariah to remember, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to show you a lot of grace. And God is about to unleash his grace on his people um, as your son comes to pronounce the grace and mercy of God. It's a fitting name. And the, John wouldn't be an ordinary child. Yeah, he was chosen by God for a special purpose and a special job. He was to be the last, the final of the Old Testament prophets. Now imagine as a child, um, John says to his dad, you know, I want to be a carpenter. What would his dad say to him? No, John, God has a special purpose for your life, unique. And John says, no, dad, I want to be a farmer. No, John, God has a special purpose for your life. He would have grown up hearing this. And as he grew up, uh, he, would have, he would have learned that his, his unique role in God's plan was to do what? To prepare people for the coming 
Messiah. What a privilege that would have been for Zechariah to know that his son would grow up to be, you know, the next Noah, the next Elijah, the next Moses. And what we do know about John is that as he grows up, he actually starts to resemble a prophet. He starts um, preaching messages that sound very prophetic. He starts um, wearing clothes that are very prophet-like. Uh, he, would, he would wear this, um, this camel skin uh, shirt and a, and a leather belt, the, the exact same outfit that Elijah wore. And like Samson and like Samuel, he wouldn't touch alcohol. So he started acting like a prophet and walking around as a prophet. And you can imagine, just to help illustrate this, Imagine you are walking around on the streets of, you know, Collins Street or something, and you see a man. He's wearing a, a metal tin hat. It's kind of flat on the top with a slit. Who is that? Ned Kelly. Like, you would immediately think, Ned Kelly. I know it's not actually Ned Kelly, but, you know, he's, he looks like Ned Kelly. And so as John the Baptist is walking around and preaching, he actually, he actually looks like Elijah. And people start regarding him as they regarded Elijah. And he he spoke with the same kind of authority as Elijah. And in fact, here's what we know about John. He was actually a fulfillment. His birth, his life, was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. The final uh, pages of the final book, of the final uh, chapter of the Old Testament, written by the final prophet of the Old Testament, was Malachi. And at the end of the book of Malachi, he closes the Old Testament with these words. He says, he says this, and I'll read them to you. This is from the Old Testament, from Malachi. He says, See, I will send Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the parents to the children, and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with destruction. And it's these words that the angel quotes in the temple. And so the, the angel explicitly says, hey, look, your son will be the fulfillment of what that prophecy was. Everything that Elijah said in the Old, or that Malachi said in the Old Testament, that will be true of your son, and he will have this important role to prepare people for the coming Messiah. Now, that's a, that all sounds very exciting, especially for a priest, right? That sounds incredible. You would think that that Zechariah would be elated at this news. But here's my next point. He's not. He's uncertain of the facts. You know, this angel appears to him. You know, that in itself is, is wild. And, he, and yet he's uncertain. He's standing in front of an angel, and he's still, he's still thinking, yeah, I can't believe this. And he says, look at verse 18. How shall I know this? I'm old, and so is my wife. You know, How's this going to happen? How is my elderly, frail wife going to give birth to a child? I mean, it's like he's saying to the angel, don't you, don't you understand biology? Don't you know how things work? She can't give birth to a child. And so he doesn't believe what the angel says. His response was similar to that of other people in the Old Testament, similar to that of Sarah. You remember the story of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah laughs in her old age, when she's told that she will have a child. And so he doesn't believe. But his belief, unbelief, it's not the same kind of unbelief as that of an atheist. You know, this is not an unbelief 
that says that completely rejects God and says, no, I want nothing to do with God. His is a doubt. You see, the thing about Zechariah is that he knows what the Bible says. He has this head knowledge in him. He knows that God created the world. He knows that, 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 uh, that God would parted the Red Sea through Moses. He knows and recounts all the miracles of the Old Testament. So functionally, he knows the truth. But there's a disconnect between what he knows and, and the way that he lives out his faith. There's a disconnect. He doesn't, he doesn't connect how this mighty, almighty, all-powerful, miraculous God could actually make a difference in his life. And so he hears the news of the angel, and he doubts his word. Look at verse 20. What happens next? He's silenced. He's shut up. Uh, Zechariah is left speechless. Why? Because he doubted. Now, this would have been, let me just say, this would have been very awkward for Zechariah. Because what was Zechariah supposed to do after leaving the temple? He's supposed to go out, lift up both hands, right, and pronounce the benediction. This was, would have been very awkward for him because when he goes out of the temple to pronounce the benediction, he's got nothing. His tongue is completely stilled. He's, he's unable to speak. And so he stands there, he goes out, he stands there, and he just kind of moves his hands and tries to, tries to communicate to people that something's happened. Uh, but the people out there don't understand. Now, there would be a time, I have to say, when Zechariah does believe. And there would be a time when Zechariah is able to pronounce uh, the blessing. But that time would only come when his son is born. And it would only come uh, once uh, Mary is visited by the angel and told the good news as well. And it's only after a variety of events happen that John is able to actually, um, to actually speak again. But it's because of his doubt that he's silenced. And this is what God does. He silences doubt. And that's in a, in a very real way. He takes all of our fears, all of our, our insecurities, all of our struggles. He takes... Uh, those self-condemning thoughts, and he silences them. And he does that through the power of his word when we listen to his voice. And here the angel silences Zechariah and the doubt that he has. Maybe we can resonate. Maybe we can resonate with Zechariah. You know, like Zechariah, we know the facts. We know and believe that God created the world we know and believe that Christ died for our sins. We know and believe that he rose from the dead. We know and believe that he will return again. We know the facts. Uh, just about everyone in this room would know those facts. All of us are here because we, we do believe in the truth of Scripture. But it is the experience of most Christians to forget. 
And it is the experience of most Christians for there to be a disconnect between the truth we know and the practical application of that truth. You know, I know that God created the world, but I am having a hard time believing that he could even bring healing to my marriage. I know that God raised Jesus from the dead, but I am having a hard time believing that he would forgive someone like me. I know that God parted the Red Sea, but I'm having a hard time believing that he will provide for my family. I know that God will come again, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. I know that, but I am having a hard time believing that he will work and change the life of my children who are walking away. There's sometimes there is this disconnect between what we know to be true and the application of that truth to daily life. And that does happen. And that was Zechariah's problem, really, because he did, he knew it all. He had the truth in his mind, but there was that disconnect between that truth and daily living. And that's why we need Luke's gospel, because Luke's gospel is designed, really, to give us certainty, to give certainty to someone like me or someone like you who is struggling with with, um, our, with, in life, that we might read this account of Zechariah and that we might read the birth narratives and that we might read the, the parables and that we might read um, the, 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 the accounts surrounding the, the passion and the death and the resurrection of Christ and that we might find certainty in the truth and that that certainty would actually make a practical difference in our lives that God, by the power of his spirit, would bridge that disconnect between what we know to be true and the way that we live out that truth in daily living. And so that's what Luke endeavors to do in this gospel. He, his goal is to give us that certainty. He, his goal is to point us back to this God who is trustworthy, a God who delivers on all the promises he makes, a God in whom we can find confidence, a God in whom is found all truth. Spurgeon once said this, and I'll close with these words, that the God we believe in is a God who writes with a pen who never blots, who speaks with a tongue that never slips, and who acts with a hand that never fails. And this morning, may we find our confidence in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of it and the certainty that we find in it. Lord, we pray that your spirit would take what what has been said and you'd apply it to our hearts and lives that we might grow and be strengthened in our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. And so we pray it in his name. Amen.